We have been making our way through the book of Corinthians, and we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you would find your Bible or a pew Bible. The book of Corinthians might be better titled the book of corrections. Because for 16 chapters, Paul just takes sort of issue after issue of, of it might be belief or it might be behavior. And tries to, to, he's trying to help this new church understand how to live as Christians now. And in chapter 11, he has this transition point. He's moving specifically to issues that are taking place inside the worship service. So for the next several weeks, as we go from 11, 12, 13, and 14, they're all in that context. He's saying, hey, I understand something's happening in your worship service, and let me offer some correction to that. And a common thread that runs through the all, four, all four chapters is the way in which they're behaving, behaving is drawing attention to themselves and not to God. So he's like, hey, we all came to worship God, and somehow in the mix of this, all the energy or all the light or all the focus is coming to you. So we've got this mixed up. So we have to change our, our, our beliefs, our understanding, but also our behavior. So you'll see in a moment that this passage is very complicated. And I'm going to have to be a little bit more deliberate in delivery. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to work harder than normal. Uh, you, you really have to have the text in front of you. I mean, it's important every week, but there's sometimes it just gets down to one word that makes a difference on how you would read this passage. So let's stand together, and we'll begin with 1 Corinthians, and I want to start in chapter 10, verse 31, and use this as sort of an umbrella statement. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So everything is about the glory of God. Now chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman. But woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are of God. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just a page or two over. And beginning with verse 29, 14:29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So you may be seated and you take a moment to reflect on these complicated verses. My favorite part of fifth grade was recess. That was my favorite part of fourth grade, third grade. I hate it when they got rid of recess. Somehow in sixth grade or seventh grade, you drop that off. And I can recall one spring afternoon just prior to recess, my teacher standing up in front of the class and warning the class that a hornet's nest had been discovered in a hollow of a, of a dead tree on the playground. And she assured us that we would be safe as long as nobody went near the tree and nobody did something stupid, like finding a stick and jamming it into the hole of the tree. Now, I was sitting there as a fifth grade boy. What was the first thing that came to my mind after the teacher's warning? I must find a stick and jam it into the hole of the tree. I mean, if you read the fifth grade handbook for boys, you must try to do this at some point as a fifth grade boy. Just one time. So I went out on the playground and I found a very large, long stick. It, at least it seemed long when I picked it up. And I really thought I gently put the stick into the hole of the tree just to see what might happen. It didn't take long for a mass of large, angry hornets to come screaming out of the hole and looking for the person at the end of the stick. You won't be surprised that despite my fifth grade cat-like speed, I could not avoid several hornets. And I paid quite a heavy price, as I remember. I'm not sure how much price my classmates paid. Right now, I'm experiencing a similar feeling. And I'm wondering if I should have poked this text. I am wondering that if my 54-year-old cat-like speed will enable me to avoid several stings in the lobby following the sermon. And so I may just leave my mic on, get in my car, deliver the benediction, and then just drive away. That, that has come to my mind. So let me make a couple of preliminary comments. First of all, if you're a visitor here, oh boy. I mean, by God's providence, somehow you wandered into this complicated discussion. And what I would want you to know that we primarily preach through books of the Bible. And that enables us not to avoid difficult texts of the Bible. Because if you were just trying to preach to a crowd, this would not be the first text you would choose. And so we come along here and we want to make sure we address this issue. Second preliminary remark, uh, remark we live in a culture with tremendous gender confusion. 
According to the website Tumblr, there are 112 gender options now. There's also quite a bit of discussion around gender equality. And what we believe is that God purposely designed two genders, male and female, not, not a gender spectrum, not gender fluidity. And we're not angry at people who are confused. We're just trying to help them understand, at least best we can say from the Bible, this is how God constructed his world, and it's the way it's supposed to be designed, and it's good. And that the Bible clearly supports equality between males and females. But when we say gender equality, we don't mean gender sameness. When we say gender equality, we don't mean gender sameness. Males and females are equal because they're all made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. Yet males and females have complementary roles. They don't have the exact same roles. And now I just I realize just making those statements for some people that's going to cause a great deal of anxiety and frustration. Just making the statement that there are two genders would want you to push back or the fact that there isn't sameness in my definition of equality. And I, I'm sympathetic to your reaction to wanting to push back against what the Bible says. Because there's quite a bit in the Bible that you might want to push back against. This is just one passage. Personally, I would prefer not to love my enemies and not to bless those who curse me. But because I'm a follower of Christ, that's what it says. So I have to do that, even though I might want to push back and say, well, I'm sure, God, if you knew this enemy, you wouldn't really want me to love him. You'd really want me to hurt him or something. And I want to feel that, I feel that pushback. So I'm just sympathetic to that feeling of wanting to push back. But I would want to say this to those who would want to push back is, if you're ever going to follow a God, and in this case I'm saying just any God, which is not made exactly in your image. If you ever want to follow a God who's not basically you, then you wouldn't be surprised to find out that there are some patterns of your current belief and behavior that will have to change. That shouldn't be shocking if there's a God who has the right way and you're trying to follow him. It shouldn't be shocking unless the God is your exact representation that he would offer some ways that would be against or counter to your beliefs or counter to your behavior. So my hope is that you'll continue to listen and at least understand how I understand this particular text in the Bible. Third preliminary remark. In regards to gender roles at Christ Community Church, we view, our view is complementarian. It's a big word, but it's, it's opposed to egalitarian. That's how that argument is usually framed. We're complementarians here because we think that's the best reading of the Bible. And here's a definition I'm using from a commentary. A complementarian is a person who believes God created male and female to complement each other in their roles and duties, specifically in the family and the church. 
Men and women reflect complementary truths about Jesus. Males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church in a way that females cannot. And females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ in a way males cannot. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. When I use the word, or when we as a church use the word complementarian, we don't in any way want you to think, especially if you're a woman, that that means you're part of the JV squad at the church. Uh, we, we, don't, we, we recognize that the, the women hold an honored position because it's purposefully designed by God himself. And it's purposefully designed at creation when all things were good. And if at any point in this discussion or any future discussion we might have on this topic at Christ Community Church, and you feel like I'm talking down, then I'm doing a poor job communicating because that's not what I'm trying to communicate here or even at another time. So let's transition now into this text. The, the first problem in the worship service Paul tackles here is not about head coverings. This is a, you've got to really understand this point because it's going to make a difference as we go down the line. The, 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 the problem in the text is not about head coverings. It's about honoring God. If you don't see this, then what's going to happen is you're primarily going to think Paul came into the church and noticed a fashion problem. And he just wants to talk about fashion, and that's not what he wants to talk about here. He wants to talk about honor, honor of God and honor of each other. And the way he sees it working out is a fashion issue, but that's not the primary problem. But if you see that as the primary problem, what you're going to do is you're going to read a text like this and you're going to ask, especially if you're a female, should I wear a hat to church? And if that's how you read the text, then you're looking at like the symptom and not the main problem. And what I'm trying to do is get to the main problem here. Here's my outline. Paul outlines or gives us a principle. That's verse 3. And then he tells us what the problem is in the church. That's verses 4 through 6. And then to back up his solution, he wants to give us proof. And that's verses 7 through 10. And then the last two verses, 11 and 12, he pauses for clarification. So he's going to give us a principle. He's going to outline the problem. He's going to give us a proof. And at the very end, he's going to pause and say, let me make sure this is really clear in your mind. And so that's how we'll go through it. First of all, the principle, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, you wouldn't believe how much is written about just this one word, head. In one commentary, there were eight pages dedicated to this one word. What does it mean? What are the different ways it could mean? What are the implications of these meanings? And I would say that the best, I think, is the best interpretation is head refers to order and authority. Order and authority. So the principle that Paul is laying out here in verse 3 is that God has designed relationships with order and authority. And we'll see that unfold. First, 
he talks about the man. The head of every man is Christ. That's the order. That's the authority. This means that men are to act in a way that honors Jesus. And as men act in a way that honors Jesus, it glorifies God. Remember 1031, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So men are acting in a way that honors Jesus, and when that happens, it brings glory to God. Second, the head of every wife is her husband. So this order means that wives are to act in a way that honors their husband. And as wives act in their designed role to honor their husband, it brings glory to God. So as men honor Christ, it brings glory to God. As wives honor their husbands, it brings glory to God. That's the goal. But notice there's a third pairing here. The head of Christ is God. And I, and I think that this is genius writing by Paul. First of all, this, this order means that Christ acts in a way to bring glory to God. So everybody's acting in a way to bring glory to God. And this third pairing tells us something about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That there's order and authority in the Godhead itself. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are each fully God. Yet this equality in their nature doesn't prevent order, order and authority in their relationships. Let me say that again. Their equality in nature doesn't prevent order and authority in their relationships. For Christ to be, for God to be Christ's head doesn't mean that Jesus is any less God. It doesn't mean Jesus has an inferior status. It doesn't mean that Jesus is on the JV team in the Trinity. It's a difference of roles. It's not a difference of nature. Now, nod your head like you understand what I'm saying. Okay? You got that? Because that's just so clear, or that has to be so clear, because when we bring that over into our human relationships, we want to transfer that same idea over. That's why that's important. Now, here's, I think, the genius is in Paul's writing. Paul's writing to a church that he knows well. He knows this church. He knows the culture of Corinth. And he knows the people are really into themselves. That's why they're having this problem. Is I, I walk into the church, and I'm meant to worship God, but I really want people to notice me. And he knows that's in the heart of these people, that they're into themselves and into their freedom. So he knows as he, he dictates these first two pairings, whether you're male or female, he understands, he may even can hear pushback against this idea that anybody's the head over me. Does that make sense? He's hearing that, hey, if you're a male, I don't want somebody to be the head over me. If you're a wife, I don't want somebody to be the head. He's hearing that pushback. And I think the genius of this third pairing and putting it here is that Paul underlines our human need for authority by showing us that Jesus was under the same structure. I think this is genius by Paul. Jesus submits to the same structure of order and authority that he commands us to do. Yet, we shouldn't be surprised to see the relational structure in the creator 
of the world reflected in the relational structure of the creation of the world. Does that make sense? If the creator has this relational structure where there's difference in roles but sameness in nature, you wouldn't be surprised that when he had roles down here, there would be equality of nature but difference in roles. That's just reflecting or imaging. We're made in God's image. You would anticipate that actually happening down here in his creation. So I think this is so critical to understand. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, which we talked about during the resurrection series. Here's how human history comes to an end. Then comes the end. The Son himself will also be subjected to God. That God may be all and in all. So everything terminates on the glory of God. Even Jesus' life and work itself, it's in subjection to God, which glorifies God. So everything is moving in that direction. And I don't know if Paul purposely puts this pairing at the end, but it feels like he does to shut people up. That's how the feeling I got. He's hearing the feedback and saying, hey, I just want to, hey, remember that whole Jesus and thing? He's under that same structure. Oh, okay. I can't complain. That's how I feel that Paul's talking here. So this is the principle that he's laying out in verse 3. There's structure and authority from the Trinity down to the creation. And it's God-designed and it's good. Secondly, there's a problem. Verses 4 through 7. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife, so we've got, here's the problem with the man. He's praying with his, or prophesying with his head uncovered. And then there's a problem, verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head or her husband. And so there's a problem here. And I would say there's two big problems in this text. One problem is ours. And one problem is the Corinthians. Our problem. How do we put verse 5, that women are praying and prophesying in the church together with chapter 14, 34, and 35, where Paul says women can't speak in the church? Do you feel the problem? So it's not like Paul wrote, took a nap, and then got to chapter 14, he's like, oh, I forgot I said this back in 11. He's not like, hey, I, oh, I, I don't have a delete button on my ink pen. Or, you know, he understands that he said both of these things in the same book and just separated by a couple of chapters. And I think this is the hornet's nest for us. And it's a huge topic, and I'm only going to just bump across the surface of it. In the newsletter, there'll be some resources that you can read on your own. I don't think Paul contradicted himself. In fact, if he had meant for women to be completely silent in the worship service, as it sounds like he says in chapter 14, then chapter 11 would have been the perfect opportunity to say something. Hey, I've heard about your worship service where women are praying and prophesying in the worship service. They're supposed to remain silent, so let's cut that out. I mean, that would have been the easiest thing for him to say, but he doesn't actually say that. In fact, he commends that it's happening. That's verse 1. I'm commending you for what you've done. Or, or verse 2. 
So he's commending that women are praying and prophesying. He's commending that men are praying and prophesying. What he's not commending is the way it's taking place. And the way it's taking place is dishonoring to God and dishonoring to each other. Now let me give you a quick definition of prophecy. We're going to get to this later in this series, but it makes a difference here. And I want to give you the definition by just reading chapter 14, verse 3. And I want you to read with me. Because here's basically how Paul defines this gift of prophecy. Chapter 14, verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, this is what males and females were doing in the worship service, speaks to people, speaks to people for their uplifting, encouragement, and consolation. So we're just going to limit ourselves to that being the definition there. Whatever this word of prophecy was, it was for uplifting, encouragement, and consolation. Now, I wouldn't want you to think this prophecy, whatever it was said, is on the level of like the Old Testament prophet, Amos or Micah or Jeremiah or Isaiah. It's not, thus saith the Lord, and you just listen to it. No, It's something that you need to weigh. And in chapter 14, verse 29, that's what it talks about. This prophetic speech happens in the church service, and then somebody needs to weigh in on it. Somebody needs to evaluate what actually has been said, both male and female. And so just in terms of a prophetic speech, you may have heard it, and you you may be familiar with it, but I would just say something maybe we'd all be familiar with is, when somebody's speaking in some way, let's say like Chuck Colson or Martin Luther King, they're not saying something that's the Bible that you need to write down behind Revelation, but they have a kind of prophetic voice about something that's happening in the culture that people need to weigh and say, is that right? And it sure sounds like it's right, and they're coming from the Bible with what they're saying. So it's not a gospel But it's something that the church would want to weigh and see, is this right? And for the most part, what they said was right in that way. So I think the context of women keeping silent, this is chapter 14, 34, I believe has to do with the weighing of that prophetic speech. So the way Paul has structured the church, and you learn this from 1 Timothy chapter 2, is that inside the church there are some qualified men. They're called elders. It's not every man. It's some qualified men. And they're the ones that have the authority to weigh these things. They're the ones who speak for the whole church. And when they weigh in on these things, that's the way God wants the church to operate. It doesn't mean that they're faultless. But in terms of a structure, they weigh in. And what Paul doesn't want is when the elders to weigh in, to have a woman then come override that and say, yeah, I don't think you're right. Now, if she's concerned about it, she can talk to her husband at home about it. But inside the worship service, that would be getting this order and authority mixed up. So the women can pray. The women can prophesy. But when it comes to weighing what happens, then some men are the ones who are supposed to speak. And what was happening, I think, in the church is that some women were overstepping their authoritative bounds in the church. And that's why he's saying at that point, at the weighing point, the women have to be silent. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you have to agree, 
That's just the best reading, I think, of this particular text. So you can see how if you take that verse 34 and 35 out of context, you don't make too many friends, right? All right, so let me give you an example maybe from the family which has the same divine structure. A lot of this vocabulary about who's the head and that sort of thing comes from Ephesians 5. And I think there are some parallels that we could draw, especially the, the spirit of what I'm trying to talk about here. Nancy and I regularly sit down to have team meetings. We, we have them sometimes scheduled. Hey, let's, let's make sure we talk about this. And sometimes it's just we have time and different things come out. There are things about our budget or our calendar or our kids. They're, they're of course, never about me or anything like that. Um, and if you watch this team meeting, if you were to observe it, my hope is that what you would, would observe is that both are listening, both are offering valuable insight, but it's done in a way that I'm honoring and benefiting from Nancy's input. I'm saying, oh, that's great. I hadn't thought about it that way, or I think you're right. Let's, let's go in that direction. But Nancy is having the same conversation in a way that's honoring and trusting me with the final decision. Does that make sense? So when we're having this discussion, it just looked like, hey, they're both kind of trying to figure out what's the best way forward. And I'm doing it in a way that makes sure she knows or somebody else is there. He really honors her. He wants her input. He's, he needs it. He's, he benefits from her input. He goes with her way plenty of times. But if it ever comes to a place where, hey, we just got to make a decision and there's some uncertainty, then, then I own that part. I'm the designated leader in that way. And although this doesn't happen most of the time, occasionally I'll say, I don't know which way to go. And she'll say, I don't know which way to go. And I'll say, and she looks at me and I say, well, you choose. And what does she say? Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to hang me with this one. You're going to choose. And that's the right way to say it. Say, hey, if we don't know, I could say, hey, I think your idea is great and we go with that. That happens plenty of times. But that's how you should see that work in our family. And I think because that's a parallel kind of relationship to what happens in the church, I think that's what you should see in the church. You should see all these people, male and female, speaking in a way that's all trying to get us towards the same direction. But it would be done in a way that would be honoring both of the, of the wives or women who are speaking and honoring of the relationship between men and women. Does that make sense? I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. Now, let's remember that the problem that the Corinthians are facing, it's not a fashion problem. It's not a problem about women speaking. It's an honor problem. And the way they're doing it here is dishonoring. So Paul gives these instructions, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors Jesus. So in the Roman pagan empire, when you were going into a temple as a man, you would have kind of a toga. You would put it over your head. It would be a way of saying, I'm honoring this other deity. And if you became a Christian and you came into the church and you pulled your veil over your head, it began to send mixed signals to the people. He's in the church, but he's signifying that he's honoring another deity. So Paul's saying, we don't want that. If you've gotten used to that habit, let's get unused to that habit because that's how the culture thinks. Secondly, 
Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband or her head. Most scholars think that this head covering is kind of a shawl, and it was a public sign of marriage. So it was worn out of a woman's respect for her husband, saying, I'm married, and I'm respecting my husband. And an uncovered head meant that the woman was available. A shaven head meant the woman was either a prostitute or an adulterer. And so a woman coming in who's married, who's praying and prophesying with her head uncovered, is dishonoring or even denying her husband. And Paul says, we don't want that. Everybody understands that in the culture. And so if you get up, you take your shawl off, then everybody goes, oh, I thought she was married. She's available. Well, now, are people talking about what she's saying or talking about her? You see what's happening? All of the tension becomes, goes to her. And he's saying, in this culture, you need to have this sign of honor in a way to say, I'm married. And I'm married inside the church as well as outside the church. So Paul's trying to reject the man who comes in and covers his head or the woman who comes in who uncovers her head, not because of fashion, but because of the way the culture is structured and honoring each other. All right, so that's the, that's the principle, that's the problem, and he, Paul now wants to move to his proof, verses 7 through 10. He wants to back up his statements by going back to Genesis And this is how God originally structured relationships in the world. And again, he starts with men and then he goes to women. Verse 7, every man is the image and glory of God. So Adam was given a unique role. It's a leadership role. His leadership is supposed to image God's leadership. He's in the image of God. And as the leader down here, he's supposed to image that leadership. And we know that's true because after the fall, when God comes back in the garden, what is the first thing he said? Adam, where are you? What does Adam try to do? You know, it's her problem, right? And so you understand, hey, God's holding Adam responsible for his family. Men, God is still holding you responsible for your family. That didn't change in Genesis chapter 3. You are the head of your family, and if God were to come and ask about your family, he would ask you first, how are you doing? So you wouldn't want to say as a married man, hey, that's women's work. That's what Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam is given a very unique place. He's the imaging God in his leadership. The women, verse 7, every wife is the glory of man. Now, you've got to notice this. He doesn't say every wife is the image and glory of man. Why doesn't he say that? Because every wife is the image of God. Does that make sense? But she's got a special role in a marriage relationship. She's the glory of man. She's made in a way... That she's supposed to help Adam fulfill the task that God has given him to fill up the whole world. And so God imagines these two people who are in his image, equal in nature, different in roles, 
working together to fill up the whole world with the goodness of God. That's the whole picture. And to me, that's a beautiful picture. And he's saying when that happens, when men are doing that and women are doing that, you're imaging the Trinity who's doing the same thing. So when that's happening down here on earth or happening specifically in the church, people say, hey, that looks like God. And that's the whole point. To get closer to this so when people see you as a married couple or us as a church, they go, there's something about God I know now because they're imaging him perfectly. Amen? That's the goal. Paul's proof comes from creation. So, should women wear hats to church? That's probably like, come on, let's just get to that. And my answer is not necessarily. I'm not saying it's bad if you do. But in our culture, head coverings don't communicate honor or dishonor. If you were to walk into the church today as a woman and have a hat on, it would say something about fashion, not something about honor. If you were a man who walked in here with a hat on, it would say something about fashion, not honor. So we don't see it in the same way. So I would say it's not necessary. If it's something you want to do, then that's fine. But Paul, remember, the main problem is an honor problem. It's not a fashion problem. So the way he wants every church to work is in a way, however that is culturally, where men are honoring God by the way they live, and wives are honoring their husband by the way they live. And maybe in some cultures, that means fashion. But in our culture, that doesn't necessarily have the same connection. So that's why I would say, not necessarily. One commentator says this, I'm not sure in our culture that we have a single piece of clothing that functions as a cultural equivalent to the first century head covering. A garment that indicates, I'm a woman, I'm happy to be a woman, I'm accept, I'm, I have accepted God's order of relationships between men and women. We don't have a garment that says all that. Now, let me give you one illustration that I think in our culture may communicate what I'm trying to say. Tim and Kathy Keller. Some of you know this name. He was the pastor at Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in New York City. He and his wife co-wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And when Tim Keller delivered his sermon on this particular text, he exposited, like I'm tr trying to do desperately here, uh, this text. And you might go listen to it and say, he did a lot better than you, Paul. And I'll, I, I, can, I can withstand that. But when he delivered this passage, he delivered on a Sunday morning. And he's the pastor. He stood up behind the pulpit and talked about this. And then later that evening, they had a Q&A session, and that was led by Kathy, his wife. So this seems to me in our culture, and maybe it doesn't to you, but it seems to me to preserve what I think they're talking about him. Tim is publicly recognized as the authority. He's giving it in the place that our culture would say, that's the authority. To come back later for a Q&A uses Kathy's incredible gifts and insight, but in a way that honors Tim as the authority. Does that make sense? 
So I think that's the way you might see it happen here that doesn't have a head covering issue. So that's what, how I would see it maybe playing out here. Now, before I come to this last point, which is only one paragraph, you'll be happy to know. Look at verse 10 with me. Chapter 11, verse 10. That's why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. This whole explanation he's given. And then notice this phrase, comma, because of the angels. What does that mean? This is why it's a complicated passage. He kind of just, he, could, he should have just said head, period. He really should. I've said, Paul, don't throw that in there. I mean, it might be right, but in, in 2,000 years, people are going to be really confused by this. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know what it means. No one knows what it means. I mean, I have six or seven commentaries on the book of Corinthians, and I looked at every one on this verse. And they're like, well, nobody knows what it means, but I think this is what it means. But they're all different. It's something about the angels peering in on the Christian worship service. And whether they're seeing how honor is given and reporting it back to God, one possibility, or they're learning how to honor God by the way the preeminent creation, man and woman, do it. I don't know. One pastor said, we don't know what it means, so I would suggest just using it for your teenagers. As they go out on a Friday or Saturday night, just say, you know, because of the angels. And just kind of whip that out and let that sit with them like, oh my gosh, the angels are around. So I'm, I'm, you know, you don't want to take the Bible out of context, but I think that's fair right there. (laughs) Apologizing to the teenagers who are now going to hear that for the next few years. Let me close with verse 11 and 12. This is the pause for clarity. Again, genius writing by Paul. Nevertheless, okay, so I've said all of this. Nevertheless, in case there's any confusion in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. You see how he's getting back to this equality. For as man was made from man, so man was now, now is born. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born from a woman. And all things are of God. So if you've read through this and you've listened to me talk about it, and if any person here, if any man has come away thinking, well, I guess I don't have to honor my wife or I can live independently of my wife, you're wrong. He doesn't want you to read the first ten verses, men, and say, well, I guess I've got the authority position and I can just do what I want and I can live independently. If that's what you're taking away from it, Paul's anticipating and saying, you misheard what I said. Go back and read. And if you're a woman and you've read these verses and you come away thinking that somehow you're on the JV squad or you're not equal, then you're wrong. Go back and read. That's not what he's trying to say here. Now, I can hear, because I have this in my own own voice, in my own head, saying, so does that mean, and you have these questions, do you not? Well, that's what lunch is for. (laughs) 
So you can say, well, okay, the implications of this for... and Now, I won't be here, and I'm going to be in my car safely stuck away. What, what I would want you to, to hear, if I, if I could somehow say it, is how beautiful this is supposed to be. That's the whole goal. Is how, even if I've miscommunicated, I want to communicate, it's supposed to be beautiful. And it's supposed to be beautiful in a way that when somebody sees it, they don't see you as beautiful or us as beautiful. They see God as beautiful. Whether it's in a church or whether it's in your own family, that's the whole goal. It's not in any way trying to get people on levels or who gets to submit or how much authority somebody. That's not the primary thing. The primary thing is live like the Trinity. And when you're living that way in your marriage and in your church, people are going to see God. And that's what we want, is it not? Let's pray. Lord, we desperately, I desperately need your help on a passage like this and all the little minefields that come along with this. And then all the applications. Uh, Does that mean I should or shouldn't? And where do I step or where should I step back? I mean, it, it creates a need for great wisdom on our part to know how it works out in our culture. We see how it works out in Paul's culture in Corinth. But that's not going to be a perfect match to to Wilmington in the 21st century. So we ask for wisdom as we move forward that however this manifests itself to us, it would manifest itself in a way that would bring you glory. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.